Well, good morning. So if you are new to LifePoint, if this is your first time or maybe you're newish to LifePoint, my name is Ed Travers. I'm a teaching pastor here at our campus in Westerville. Want to say to you, welcome. Uh, do me a quick favor, though. Pull out your phone, turn on the camera, and put it on a QR code on a chair in front of you. That'll take you to a landing page called lpguest.com. That is our online connect card. So all the information you want to know about our church, you can find there. Uh, there's a, a, a note section uh, to, to follow along in the sermon notes. Uh, you can enter interact with that, write some stuff, and email it to yourself if you want a record of what you were learning today. Uh, there's On the other side, there's a guest information button. If you click that button, fill out a little bit of information. Tell us how you heard about LifePoint. Scroll down. There are five ministries we support from all of our campuses. If you check one of those boxes, we'll do an extra $5 donation to that ministry in your honor just to say thanks for checking in with us, and it's a great way to do something good today. Um, Want to say to you, uh, super excited about today. If you are new, like I said, this is this is not normal, uh, but we do this once a year called this series called Now Playing, and in this series uh, we're looking at faith in light of film and how we're looking at how good stories often point to great stories in the Bible. But I want to say because the, the way our church is going, if you've been around the last several weeks, you know that we're kind of swelling. People are coming at such a rate that uh, it's messing up our parking lot and our kids' area. And we can fit everyone in here. But because of that, we are going to go to three services starting next week. So our 9 o'clock service will be the new early service. So we're asking everyone that's at that early service to kind of shift down to the 9 o'clock. Then we are going to create a service at 1030 and also at noon. So here's what that means for you. Um, many of you, your students were part of the student group that meets after service. We are no longer going to have that service. The, I'm, I'm, I mean, sorry, they're not going to be after service. They're going to be during the noon service. So if your students, middle school, high school, were part of that, that will happen at the noon service. So maybe go to one service, uh, serve at one, and, and you know, pick up your kids or, or stay here for the noon service. If people don't go to the noon service, none of this works. And so to, in order to make that happen, we have committed to making the 1030 service our worst service of all time. So don't go to the 1030 is what I'm telling you. But unless your friends want to go, then bring them. But I, and I'll make it good for them, but not for you. So here's the thing. Here's the thing. Some of you know that we have to think missionally to reach people in our community, and this is a mission. You know, this isn't just for us. It's for, uh, we're always thinking about people on the outside. We need to create space for them. And for some of you, that means, hey, go to the noon, go to the nine o'clock in order to create space. Does that make sense? Um, that said, uh, super excited about that, excited about what's going to happen in the future. You know, it's going to be exciting to see. I want to tell you that uh, I was in middle school when my English teacher uh, made all of us in the class read a book by S.E. Hinton called The Outsiders. You guys remember that? Uh, it's an incredible book, really targets teenage, uh, you know, teenage lives, and it's really the story of, of, you know, kind of social class, you know, clashing together in late 60s, early 70s. Well, in the early 80s, they made a movie called The Outsiders, and here's a little poster from the movie. You guys remember that? And that's where I was introduced to a young actor named Tom Cruise. Now, he was a part-time uh, role player character in this story, a guy named Steve Randall, but he was kind of a scene-stealer guy. Then later on, he came out with another movie where he was a lead, and you're like, wow, this guy's getting a lead? That's, that's really interesting. And then in 1986, he was Maverick in Top Gun. And then he became an international superstar. And he's, he's never not been that for the last 30 years. That movie was so well done and so unique uh, that 
literally, people want to wear bomber jackets to school the next day, wear the aviator glasses, get the haircut. People, I'm sure, went into the military because they wanted to be a pilot like him. This guy made a movie that everyone, everyone loved. So the sequel, 30 years later, let me tell you something. You have to be, you have to be pretty sure that a movie's gonna do well if you invest $170 million to make it. Just think about that number. They invested $170 million to make the movie. It was filmed in IMAX certified 6K cameras. They used F-18 fighter jets to make it. It is incredible. I asked a friend of mine who, who flew fighter jets. I said, how much of this is legit? He goes, 90%. He goes, what you see there is almost completely what they're filming. And on top of that, there's a little bit of CGI. But when you see those people in the cockpit, they're not actually in the cockpit, the people who are flying these actors, but they are actually in the planes. They made it look like they were in the cockpit, but they're actually flying when they filmed all this. Isn't that incredible? They took such detail with these flight scenes. I'm telling you, they are stunning. If you haven't seen the movie, that is the movie. It's incredible to watch what they're doing. But it made $1.5 billion at the box office. Think about that. 1.5. I'm assuming most of you have seen it. I am going to ruin it for you if you have not seen it. But I'll do my best to maybe leave some little, a little bit in there for you guys. Here's the thing about the movie. It, it's really the story of Maverick, who's this, this guy who, uh, you know, is this uh, fighter pilot guy who now, 30 years later, is working as a test pilot. Uh, he's, he's not risen up the ranks like his other, you know, co-pilots have because he keeps getting himself in trouble. But he is, uh, you know, a risk taker, Maverick personality. And, uh, you know, he's doing his thing. And then there's a mission that's come up that they need him for. The mission is that a, a rogue nation has a uranium plant that's going to be up and running soon. They're going to be able to have nuclear missiles, and the America is going to send their pilots in in this really dangerous mission to take out that plant before it can get operational. But they need someone to come in and train the pilots. The pilots are the best Top Gun pilots of, that have won Top Gun or been competitors there at that, at that school, and they're bringing them back, and Maverick is going to come in to teach them and train them to do the mission. In the backstory of all this, you remember from the first story, his best friend Goose died in a tragic accident. Goose had a son whose call name is now Rooster, and he's one of the pilots at Top Gun that wants to be in this dangerous mission. But Maverick has promised, you know, Rooster's mom, Goose's wife, that he would protect him, Rooster, and not let him get into danger and die in, in flight. So there's this whole story happening, and it is really fantastic. Uh, you do not have to be a fan of Tom Cruise, personally, to recognize that this is just one of the best movies he's, he's put out. It's amazing. Highly recommend it. But I was thinking, what is it about the film that made it transcend just the film itself? What is it? And it's really, it's the Maverick character. We're drawn to these Maverick-type people, the people who kind of uh, buck against authority, and they, they go on their own, they go up against all odds, and they end up becoming the hero. That story is really in many stories, many movies, they have that same theme, the maverick character who, who becomes the hero. And I think what draws us to that character is the bravery, that we see this incredible bravery in the person and we admire that. And I think the reason we admire that is because bravery is so hard to come by. It's just difficult. And so that's why we put these people on pedestals and, and they become our heroes. We see them do these things that, that we think, would I do the same thing in that situation? I don't know. Why? Because I don't know if I could do that. But how is that connected to our faith? 
Because that's what we're looking at in this whole series. How is, how is film really play itself out in incredible faith stories in scripture? And I think when it comes to faith, the same thing is true. That deep down, we want to be these people of faith that have this deep, courageous faith, heroic faith. And on this side of 50, looking back at life, here's what I've learned about watching people and experiencing it myself. The people who have this intense, courageous faith tend to make the biggest mark. They do. They tend to, to, to make a difference for the kingdom of God. They tend to make a difference in their communities, in their families, in their neighborhoods, in their schools. People who have that deep faith. And here's what else I would say about them. That when life comes at them, when circumstances happen to them, and they are not immune to dealing with circumstances and difficulties and diagnosis type things, they seem to have a strength about them that's different for people who don't have it. They don't just have to white knuckle it and bear down and grit their teeth. They seem to have something else. And here's the thing. I think people like me admire those people who have deep, rich faith, and we want to be like that. We want to have that kind of strength in our life. And I can tell you, if you came in today and your faith is struggling, that you, there's something in you that wants to have that deep, rich faith. And if you came in and you're like, I don't even know that my faith registers. I know that when life is tough, is tough. All of us want to have that kind of faith. So how do we get it? How do we get this courageous faith? That's what we're going to look at today. If you have a Bible, go to Judges chapter 11. And before we dig in there, let's just take a second to pray. Here's what I'm going to ask you to do. Close your eyes and bow your head. Talk to God for a second. In your heart, here's what I want you to say to him. Say, God in heaven, would you please speak to me today? Through your Holy Spirit, will you show me through your word? Talk to me today. Meet me where I'm at. Father, I'm asking this for all of us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right. So let me give you a text of scripture that I think is gonna to speak to what it means to have a courageous faith and what's gonna encourage us today. And my hope is if you came in today and you feel like you're struggling, I want you to be encouraged. And if you came in today and you're like, you're thriving, man, I want you to have like the wind behind you like Maverick himself and fly with your faith. And if you came in and you feel like I don't have faith, I wanna help you today. And this scripture I think is pretty amazing. It's in, in Judges chapter 11. If you're following along in the sermon notes, the first thing I want to share is this. If we're going to have a courageous faith, we need to understand that God specializes in using flawed people. Now, the book of Judges is at a time when, remember, the Israelites were down in Egypt as slaves. Moses comes in and then God delivers them up out of Egypt and you know, part the Red Sea, all the plagues, all that stuff. They get out there in their own land. They have kind of a miscue of faith. And then God says, look, this generation's not going to inherit the land, but under Joshua, the next leader, they're going to get into the land. And so they got into the land under Joshua and under his leadership before he died, they solidified the nation as the nation of Israel. God drove out their enemies and they became a nation. And the 12 tribes each took a piece of the land. Well, what happened then after Joshua died, there'd be a new leader that took place who would be the leader of Israel called a judge. This would be the spiritual uh, military leader over Israel. But God was the one leading the whole thing. What would happen is Israel would have this moment of prosperity where everybody celebrates God and worships God. But the next generation would fall away from God and would start to worship the false gods of the peoples around them. And then God would take his hand of protection off of them and then they would experience that and it usually led to oppression and famine and war and all kinds of stuff. Then those people in that part of the cycle, they would cry out to God, say, God, please save us, please save us. Then he would rise up 
a new leader, a judge who would have incredible faith in God. And God would use that leader to free the people, to defeat the enemies. And then the people would experience prosperity and they would worship God and be excited. And the next generation would turn away from God. And the cycle would go on and on and on. For 400 years in the book of Judges, it goes on and on and on. And it gets worse and worse through each judge. Eventually, at the end of Judges, they say, look, we just need a king. We don't need God. We need a king. That's kind of what happened. Judges of what we're looking at in chapter 11 is kind of like in the, in the middle of this run. And we run across this story because the people of Israel have turned away from God. They're worshiping false gods. Now they're under oppression and they're crying out to God. And here's, God is now getting a little tired of it. And God says this to the people. Why don't you consult those other gods you're worshiping and see if they'll help you? Then they're like, okay. So they, they go and they burn down all their stuff, all their false god stuff. They throw it away and they say, look, we're serious. We want to follow you. And God's heart broke for them. He's like, all right, fine. Like, I want to help you. So this is what happens next. Chapter 11 of Judges. Now, Jephthah, the Gileadite, was a mighty warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute. And Gilead was the father of Jephthah, and Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. Now then Jephthah fled from his brothers and fled to the land of Tob, and worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him. Now, after a time, the Ammonites made war against Israel. And when the Ammonites made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to bring Jephthah from the land of Tob. And they said to Jephthah, come and be our leader that we may fight against the Ammonites. But Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you are in distress? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, that is why we turn to you now, that, that you may go with us and fight against the Ammonites and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, well, if you bring me home to fight against the Ammonites and the Lord gives them over to me, I'll be your head. And they said, yes. And they had this little ceremony before God and said, look, if you do your role, we're going to make you the head. So here's what's happening there's this war that's coming, you know, to Israel and the Ammonites are, you know, instigating this war. And now the people of Gilead who've kicked out Jephthah are afraid and they're going to get him. So let me tell you, Jephthah, here's the situation. So his dad, Gilead, is in the land of Gilead, which is really the land of Gad. So one of the, the tribes is there on the east of the Jordan. So if you remember when the Israelites were getting ready to go into the land, some of the, the, you know, of the two of the tribes decided not to go into the promised land area. They didn't cross the Jordan because there was great land out there and they wanted to keep it. And they had kind of got that through a battle. So they stayed there. And where that's at is it kind of surrounds the Ammonites. So this land of Gilead and the land of the Ammonites is in the middle. And let's think of where uh, Jordan is today. So that's where they're at. Well, the Ammonites are now trying to go in and they're picking fights and they're, they're starting to, to get a war together, a war party together to go into Judah. Like it's, it's becoming serious. So this guy, he's got a family there, Gilead, and he has a prostitute on the side. He gets pregnant and that's Jephthah. That's how they have him. But he's got a wife and he has legitimate kids and a legitimate family. And this is like the stain of the family. But they're all growing up together. And the idea here is that the father probably is dead now. And even though Jephthah has grown up there, all the sons band together to run him out. So even though he was raised there, has a family there, he's now out. He's on his own, goes north to the land of Tob. That's what's happening. So this guy... He comes from a broken, dysfunctional family. 
So what does it say that he does? That he's now up there, and it says he was, he's a, basically has this group of worthless people that are with him. Now, what does that really mean? Does that mean they're worthless? Well, what it means is they don't have land. They're not business people. They're actually raiders. And Jephthah is living as kind of like the lead raider. He is, he's a warrior, and he has this group of people that are following him. And so they see the enemies of Israel. They just go out and raid them, take their stuff, and that's how they make their living. He's like a gang leader. That's what he is. He's like a modern or an, an ancient mafia guy. Like he's, he's literally running the town, if you will, through raiding. So let me ask you something. If you were God and you're thinking to yourself, I need a holy person to, to like lead my people back to me, who do you pick? You don't pick this guy who comes from this much brokenness, except that he does. You gotta, you gotta ask yourself, why? Why pick this maverick type guy who's out there on his own, doing his own thing? I think the movie, what's interesting about Maverick as you watch this sequel, and, and I don't wanna give away too much, but, but here he is, and he has not risen up the ranks like his other peers have. And because he keeps getting himself in trouble. Why? Because he's, he's a maverick. When you watch the movie, you realize that, that he isn't like, um, that the antagonist isn't really this rogue nation. The antagonists in the movie are always the authority figures. And he can't follow them. He always has to do something to make them mad. And you find out the reason he hasn't risen up is because he continues to do this thing. He's a flawed character. On top of that, he needs someone to rescue him. So he's got Kazansky, Iceman, who, who over the course of time has basically protected him and kept his job. And he's the one who's now calling him in for this mission. He's like Jephthah, a maverick. Flawed. Can, can I tell you something just, just about that? You know, we, we love our heroes in life, not just in story and in movies, but, but we love our heroes. And here's what we find out. All of our heroes are flawed. I, I grew up, I, am, I just idolized Larry Bird. I thought he was the greatest player. I wanted to be Larry Bird. I stopped growing. <laughs> Later on, I read about Larry Bird's life and he had an illegitimate child who he basically ignored most of his life. I thought, he, oh, I mean, come on. Do you see how it works? All of the heroes that you have in life, the ones that we, that we look at and think, man, I want to be like that. I want to, we realize they're flawed. And then here's what happens with us. We look in the mirror and we realize we're flawed. We have flaws. We're broken. And when that happens, we start to think, okay, God would never use me. And here's why. And then we always have a reason why, don't we? You look back and you think, well, I had this sin issue that I really wish I had never done. I just want to cover that up. I don't want anyone to know that. Or maybe there's this, this habit you have in your life that you just can't break. Or maybe you're just, you don't have the skill set that you're hoping to have. And there's just, it's a million reasons why we look at our life and think, God would never use me. But I got to tell you, God is a specialist at using flawed people. I mean, that's all he's really working with, let's be honest. But isn't it true when you look at scripture, all of the people who did the most incredible things were extremely flawed? Moses killed a guy. David, worse than that. Peter denied Christ at his worst moment. Paul, the most incredible church planter, persecuted the church. The truth is we're all flawed. God specializes in working with flawed people. 
all right? So if we're going to have a courageous faith, then we have to be able to be honest with ourselves. Okay, I'm flawed, but does that stop me? And here's the thing. Because you have flaws, your tendency is going to be to want to discount the fact that God wants to use you, and that is just not okay because it's not true. God is not concerned with your flaws. He's concerned with your faith. So this brings me to my second point. It's easy to confuse who the real hero is. So here's what happens with Jephthah. So now he's installed as the head guy. And he sends a letter of diplomacy to the king of the Ammonites because I think he's trying to basically, like, do we really have to go to war here? Can we work this thing out? So he sends a letter and says, hey, why are you fighting against us? And the king of the Ammonites says, you're in our land, leave, and we're good. So then what he does, and it really shows that this man was raised to know the things of God because he goes on for the next 20 verses and quotes a lot of uh, Exodus and Deuteronomy and he gives this king of the Ammonites the history of Israel. And he talks about how when the Israelites came out, they were traveling around to their land and they asked the kings of that land, the kings of Moabites, the king of the Amorites, and said, hey, can we go peacefully through your land? We're not gonna stay. We brought our own stuff. Like, can we just go through here peacefully? And those kings said, no. Well, the Amorites, not the Ammonites, the Amorites actually attacked Israel. But God prevailed, did not allow the Amorites to win. He literally destroyed the Amorites and their land then became the land of Israel. So he's basically saying to the king of the Ammonites, look, get your facts straight, dude. This isn't even your land. It was the Amorites' land. And, and this is where he gets a little bit antagonistic, a little bit maverick-ish. He says, and our God protected us and gave us this land. You have a God why don't you go get, use the land that your God gave you? And, and it's been 300 years. Why didn't your God come and get the land? Why are you picking on us now? Like, almost like, all right, let's go. And so they go to war. Well, here's the pinnacle moment and probably the most important verse in all of Judges 11. It's in verse 29. Then the spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh and passed on to Mizpah of Gilead. And from Mizpah of Gilead, he passed on to the Ammonites. Skip down to verse 32. So Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them. And the Lord gave them into his hand. And he struck them from Aurora to the neighborhood of Mineth, 20 cities as far as Abel, Karimim, with a great blow. So the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. Jephthah does it. He crosses over and he wipes them out. God was with them, and they literally won. And it's super easy to say, look at how amazing the mighty warrior Jephthah was. And we miss verse 29, where it says, then the spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah. And if you read the pattern of Judges, you realize God used a, a woman, God used a, a weakling like Gideon, and God used a guy like Jephthah. But in each case, all the judges that whatever skill or lack of skill they had, God shows them and said, I'm going to put my spirit on that person, and because of my spirit, that's why the battle is going to be won. That's the pattern. You see, God is the hero, not Jephthah. It's easy to confuse that. And let me tell you something, it's, it's really interesting. Like, if you come to Life Point long enough, you might hear me talk about the gospel. You see, the gospel is incredible news. And I want you to hear that incredible news all the time because it's easy to forget, and it's easy to make it into wallpaper and you forget about it. But let me explain. God has always wanted a relationship with his people. Always. That is what he's always been about. When he made them, he said, let us make man in our image. Why? He wanted relationship. But all of us put our hand in God's face. I'm doing this my way. And then we create the brokenness. We create brokenness around us when we choose things other than what God wants. And that's why we look at the world and think, man, this is broken. And isn't it true? Look, if you came in here as a skeptic, let me tell you where you agree with the pastor today. The world's broken. 
But that brokenness also happens in us and we feel it. But God restores that by sending his own son to pay the penalty for sin. All the brokenness that we cause, that's called sin. The brokenness in us, that's sin. God pays for it. His justice prevails. Jesus Christ dies. He raises from the grave. The grace and mercy of God can set us free from sin and brokenness. That if we, if we hear that in our mind and we go, yes, I agree. And if you hear it in your mind, you're like, man, I realize I'm a sinner. That's the part that's hard for us to accept, right? I did this. I sinned. It's not everyone else out there, although that's true. But I, I also am to blame. I have turned my hand in God's face. That's where it starts in your mind. But when it seeps into your heart, that's when you realize, I, I did this. I need God. I need his forgiveness. And he's offering it. And when we hear the message that Jesus Christ rose from the grave, and now because the spirit of God is alive, he comes to us, we hear that in our heart and we can receive that by faith. When we do that, when we receive that by faith, let me tell you the advantage we have over all the people in the Old Testament. The supernatural gift of life in Christ is that he puts his Holy Spirit in us. The Bible calls it being born again. He puts his spirit in us, not like back then when he would just go on one guy. He's offering that to all of us. Anyone who would come to him in faith, his Holy Spirit in us. That's why when you come to Christ and you realize you feel something different, you start to love people you've never loved. You care about others. You start to, to want to serve others and tell people about Jesus. You hear the word of God and now all of a sudden it's making sense. Why? Because the Holy Spirit's in you. We have an advantage. Don't you see? That whatever good comes from the believer, the much we get changed, God's the one who's the hero. He works with flawed people because we're all flawed. And yet he's the perfect hero who can change us from the inside out. That's the beauty. God is the hero. In, in the movie, uh, my favorite part of the movie, and, and I'll try not to, you know, to ruin too much for you, but there's this, the, the whole issue is that this run that these pilots have to make to blow up, you know, this, this uranium plant, they have to do that within two minutes and 30 seconds. Or if they take longer, that'll be enough time for the enemy planes to get on them. And then they know it's going to be a suicide mission if they don't make it in that 2.30. And so all of the training is that top, you know, Maverick is trying to get these pilots to think they can do something more than they've ever done. But none of them seem to be able to get under the 2.30. And so, you know, the timing is messed up and the admiral is going to pull the plug and he's going to kick out Maverick. And everyone's sitting there and this new admiral who's, who's now going to be in charge tells them, look, we need to slow everything down so we can make it and blow up the uranium. And every, all the pilots are going... Uh, so what happens after that? And he's like, you know, good luck. You know, you're, you know. And just then, Maverick is suited up in a plane and he sets his plane timer for 2.15 and he makes the run. And they're watching, they're seeing the whole thing unfold. And when he makes the run in 2.15, it's like, everyone's like, yeah. I mean, everyone is excited and they're like, this is, this is the one, this is how we do this. Here's the hero, but the truth is, we look at that and we champion that and then we apply that to ourselves and think, I need to be the hero. And we misplace the fact that it's just not possible for your faith to become that courageous without God. It is impossible for you to do the things that God wants you to do without God. We can't be the hero. God is the hero. And let me tell you something. Him in us, and he promises, Hebrews 13, 5, he'll never leave us nor forsake us. Holy Spirit in me is the hope of glory. 
So if you came in here and you're like, I mean, I've got things in my life I want to, I, want, I know God has put on my heart. I, I want to be able to love people and forgive people. I want to be able to serve and trust. You want those things, but Christ in you gives you everything you need. And do you know what? When you think, well, I have to be the hero, the enemy just tells you, well, you're not a hero enough. And then that fear creeps in and that stuns us. We take a step back. But that is not what God needs. He just simply wants us to trust him in faith. Let me tell you about a guy who, who uh, uh, Tammy, my wife Tammy and I got to hang out with last week. His name is Andrew. He, we were hanging out with his wife and their two little boys. And I've known Andrew for a long time. Andrew graduated from Ohio State University with a degree in engineering, got a job as an engineer and was making really good money, had a great family, you know, and, and like he has a perfect life set up. Well, he is, he is chucking all that. He's giving it all up because he's going to go to Mongolia to be a translator for a language that doesn't have a Bible. And he's going to go there to help coordinate that the language of the, you know, the Bible gets into the, the right way so it's accurate for this people group who doesn't have a Bible. I said, why, why would you want to do that? He goes, Ed, can you imagine not having a Bible in your life? I said, no, the Bible is my life. Thank you very much. He's like, could you imagine trying to preach without a Bible? I'm like, mm. He goes, imagine trying to preach to people who don't have a Bible. They don't have the word of God to help guide their life and let the Holy Spirit speak through. He goes, he is, he is so convinced of the gospel in his own heart. He's so convinced of what Jesus did on the cross that he wants to give up his security and his future and his safety to make sure that this people group has a Bible in their language. And you and I sit here and think, man, I want to have that kind of heroic faith. I want to be like Andrew. And I'm telling you, Andrew's not the hero. If Andrew were here, he would tell you he's not the hero. I know Andrew. I've known him 15 years. So let me tell you about the first significant conversation I had with Andrew. You ready? He was a freshman in college. He came from a really good family that was like super religious. So he like, he never did anything wrong. He never listened to secular music. Like he was that guy. He comes down to Ohio State. He's in the marching band at Ohio State. He finds out that the culture of the marching band at Ohio State, yeah, they are great performers, but behind the scenes, they are decadent. I mean, there's, there's, I don't even know the right word. They're literally party animals, like all of it, right? And he's like, I don't belong here, Ed. What am I doing here? I don't belong here. I don't fit in anywhere. I want to go to Cedarville College. I said, well, look, man, Cedarville's a great college. If you want a Christian education, that's the place to go. Like, you'll, you'll love it. You'll thrive there. They'll prepare you uh, mentally for the scriptures and, and like, spiritually, theologically. It's like, that's a, that's a great place to go. I said, why do you want to go there? He goes, because I don't fit in here, and I think I'll fit in better there. I'm like, well, that's a terrible reason to do that. Because let me tell you something, we are ambassadors for Christ, which means we represent the gospel. Do you know where you best represent the gospel? To people who don't know the gospel. Like if, if everyone around you knows the gospel, it just becomes a bubble. So we have to learn to be ambassadors for Christ in a world that needs the light. We don't just go hang out in the light, right? So where do we go? You have to learn to do this. But it's uncomfortable. This is not what I want. I want a safe bubble. And I told him, I said, if you want safety, you should definitely go there. And I'm thinking, he's gone. Like, he is not buying what I'm selling. But he didn't. He stayed. And he struggled. And he tried to represent Christ as best he could. But God met him there in his faith. And he kept growing. And he learned it wasn't about him. And so how, how did he overcome? Well, he realized it's not about his own comfort. But he lives for something bigger than himself. And he can see how God does that in and through him. Andrew's not the hero. Andrew simply has faith. God's the hero. All right, so if I want to have a courageous faith, I really don't have to depend on me as much as I just need to depend on God. 
But there is going to be a hurdle that we all have to face. And that's my next line is that we all have to face a common hurdle in our faith journey. Here's what happens. And I left this out on purpose because I wish I could erase it, honestly. But there's a lesson to be learned here. In verse 30, it says, and Jephthah made a vow. Now remember, the Holy Spirit has already come upon him. Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, if you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. So what happened? Remember, he's been driven out of his home. He's now living on the run. He's a raider. He finally has the safety to come home, which is what he wanted. He comes home after victory. Do you know who comes out of his house? His daughter. He looks at his daughter and says, I, I, I am sad to know that you're here. She's like, what happened? Well, I've made a vow to the Lord. And the daughter's like, well, then do whatever you must. Let's honor the Lord. He's the one who gave you the victory. Like she has faith. So now there's this, there's this controversy as to what actually happened here. And it, there's scholars on both sides of this. Uh, a lot of the scholars think, well, he then sacrificed his daughter. Well, that doesn't really fit with Jephthah and the fact that he knew the word of God. And in the word of God, uh, only one human sacrifice is ever going to be accepted. And his name was Jesus. But no other human sacrifice is going to be accepted by God. Jephthah would have known that. But then, so what does this mean? So what he's basically saying is, when I come home, that anything comes out of the house, maybe a donkey, well, that's the first thing I'll see. One of my prized animals, maybe I'll see one of my brothers who I don't really like anyway, maybe they'll be there. Like, whatever he's thinking, he made a, a kind of a, a senseless vow at that moment, and his daughter comes out. So what it really means, probably, and most likely, is that he gave her up to service of the Lord. So she went on and basically mourned that she would never be married, never have children, and now she's gonna be living apart. Think of like Samuel, when Samuel went to go live with, you know, with Eli from Hannah. Like, she's gonna be gone. Is it possible that she was sacrificed? Look, there's a lot of, a lot of statement about that, but it doesn't seem to play out in scripture because Jephthah was considered a man of faith in Hebrews 11. And we could, we could argue back and forth, but let me tell you what is clear, and I think the lesson for us. The hurdle that he faced is one that we all face. Here's what he said. Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, if you will give the Ammonites into my hand. Why did he say that? Why would Jephthah say, well, if you do this? I mean, God has already promised to be with them, to fight their battles. He knew that from the scriptures. So why did he say if you? And I'll tell you why. Because he did the same thing that you and I do. We negotiate with God in order to get a better future that we think we can secure by this negotiation. We think, well, God, if I do this, then you'll keep up your end of the bargain. Why? We negotiate with capital that God doesn't need in order to get and bypass faith and trust. We can literally use capital. He doesn't, have you ever done this? Let me ask you a question. Have you ever said to God, God, I promise I'll never do that again. And I'll never do it again if you'll just, you ever done that? You ever done this? Listen, I'm just getting in your grill a second. You ever said, all right, God, if she's not pregnant, I promise you, we, <laughs> some of you have said, God, you know, if, 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 this, if I'll just get a better grade, I promise I'll be a better. I, God, if you'll just do this, I'll go to church. God, if you'll just do this, I'll stop doing that. God, if you'll do this, I'll start, I'll read, I'll study, I'll start giving. If God, if you'll just not let our finances crumble, not lose my job, I'll start. And we, we negotiate with God with capital he doesn't need. Like imagine God up there saying, man, if I could just get so-and-so to go to church, then the kingdom of God could finally thrive. <clears throat> he doesn't need this. God wants a relationship with us that comes by faith. But we want to bypass faith by negotiating. That's what he did. 
That's what you do to false gods. You put something on their altar and you burn it and say, well, I'm going to give this and then you're going to make it rain so my crops will grow. That's what they were doing. That's what he did here. He didn't need to do that. And in Maverick, what's interesting, and I found this to be the most touching part of the movie, Maverick's struggle was Rooster, Goose's son. He wanted to protect him. And and everything that he was doing, he was trying to control it so much that if he keeps him out of the battle, Rooster's going to hate him forever. If he puts him in the battle, he doesn't know that he can protect him. So he's struggling so bad, he goes to Iceman. He sits down with Iceman. I'm not going to tell you the whole circumstance, but he's sitting with Iceman, and Iceman says, man, you, you got to let go. You can't control this. And deep down, all of us want control. But control bypasses a life of faith. And God calls us to a life of faith. So what does that look like? How do we have a courageous faith? What does that look like for us? Let me tell you, it comes one step at a time. To have a life of faith is to hear and understand what God's asking you to do and you simply do that in faith. So what does that mean for you? Maybe you came in today and you have this thing in your life that you know God wouldn't approve of. And this is a thing you go to on a regular basis because it gives you a certain sense of numbing or it kind of helps you cope or whatever it is. And you know deep down God's never gonna bless this part of your life. But you won't let go of it. And faith for you would be to say, you know what? I'm gonna trust if I let go of this. God will meet me on the other side and somehow find a way to cope not using this. A step of faith for you would be to let go of that thing that habit, that situation. For some of you, it's letting go of a relationship that you know is dragging you somewhere you don't wanna be. For some of you, that might mean I'm gonna actually tell someone I'm sorry. For some of you, it might be forgiving someone who's hurt you. For, there's a lot of things that it might be starting to trust him with, with serving, trust him with being more consistent in, in the scriptures or in prayer. Just the way you deal with your time. The way you serve in the church, the way that you give, there might be something, a step along the way. For some of you, you need to get baptized. You've never done that because you're, you're like, well, you're afraid. Like, I don't want to be in front of people. That is a really, really not good way to handle obedience to God. We're having a baptism on the 26th. You should get baptized if you haven't. Why? Because you go public because God wanted you to acknowledge him before men. There's lots of steps. A step for you is the step of faith that God wants to build your faith to make it courageous. And that step, God will enter into that when you simply walk in obedience. He will enter into that with you. And when he does that, he starts to grow your faith. For some of you, maybe you came in today and you're like, you've never made a step of faith. And you know it's true. In your head, you've, you're, you're, you've tried to rationalize it. Yeah, I know it's true, but... And you have all these reasons in your head, like, I'm not gonna surrender my life because, well, there could be another God on another planet somewhere that maybe that's the answer, right? Like, there's all these reasons, but, but you gotta deal with what God has revealed to us, that the God of the universe is entering into your heart and telling you the gospel, and it's time to stop getting here and go right here and say, all right, I'm gonna own it and surrender. And that's your step of faith today. Wherever you're at, I want you to help. I just wanna help you take a step of faith. So let's stand together. Let's pray. Uh, we're gonna sing a chorus here in a minute. And you know, we're gonna move on and have the next thing. But let's have a minute with God. Maybe if, if you came in here today and you're, you know, you're struggling. The circumstance in your life is difficult. And for you, a step of faith is just to hang on. You need to know 
Uh, like Amy said earlier, God sees you. There's a, there's a church in scripture in Revelations 2 and 3 where, where God told that church that was struggling, just hang on. Just cling to me. I'm not asking you to do anything but cling to me. If that's you, you need to know that that takes courage to say, God, I'm gonna trust you and trust that you're good even though these circumstances are tough. And just for you today, maybe it's handing him the circumstance say, God, help me to cling. If my hands get loose, will you grab them tighter, Jesus? Maybe that's your step of faith today. And just when we start singing, maybe step out of your chair and head back to next steps, my back corner, and just pray with someone. Just let them pray over you. Invite God into that situation. Bring another human into that. Let him pray. And maybe for some of you, your, your thing is that you've got a thing you know you need to, 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 to do. There's something God has told you to do and you've been putting it off. Maybe for you in this moment, talk to God and say, God, I hear you. And if you, if you wanna have a genuine relationship with God, you've never done that, I wanna help you. Just close your eyes and start talking to God. I'm gonna pray for all of us in a second, but if, you have, if you've never made that decision to follow Jesus, here's what that would look like for you. Your step of faith today is to simply embrace the gospel into your heart. You can do that by saying, God, I believe in you. I believe you sent your son Jesus to die on a cross and I believe he rose from the grave. Tell him, God already knows what you believe, but just tell him in your heart, say, God, I believe. But then call out to Jesus right now and say, Jesus, I'm asking you right now, will you forgive me of my sin? Just tell him that. He wants to forgive you, but he gives you the opportunity to ask. And from your heart to his, say, Jesus, will you please come into my life? Will you for, forgive me, my son? I wanna follow you. Will you help me to follow you? Just tell him that. That little step of faith, that part of your faith is all that he requires. He did all the work. He wants a relationship. And when you do that, now he wants to lead you. He'll put his Holy Spirit in your life and he's gonna ask you to follow him with little things, little steps along the way. But he makes it easy and that he's with you in all these steps. If you just prayed that prayer, I'm gonna ask you to do one thing. Because Jesus said this. He said, if you acknowledge me before men, I will acknowledge you before my Father in heaven. If you just prayed that prayer, I'm gonna ask you to acknowledge that between you and me and God. If that's you, anywhere in the room, just raise your hand up high enough that I can see it just to say between you and me and God, today was my day. I wanna pray. I want Jesus. If that's you, anywhere in the room, high enough I can see it. Yes, I see you. High enough I can see, raise your hand up. Say, today was my day, I wanna follow Jesus. God, I thank you for being a God that cares about us, that loves us, that you know our hearts. You know where we struggle and fear and yet God, you call us to faith. But the thing is, God, you're right there with us. And God, for a lot of people in this room, they have things that are going on in their soul that cause them to feel like they're losing grip. And I'm asking God that you would grab them and hold them tight. Let them know that you're there and help them to cling to you. God, for those in the room who have steps to take, God, I pray you would be in their step. Lord, be the hero of their story. Let them start to sense your glory in and through the circumstances, situations you've called them to. God, so that your name would be praised and you would be glorified as the hero of our story. And we ask that all in your son's name.